0: Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom, celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at banyan.com. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Banyan Books podcast. My name is Ross McKeechee, and today we are joined by a wonderful guest, Mr. Norman Fisher. Norman Fisher has a long relationship with Banyan Books. He is a Zen Buddhist teacher and priest a poet, author, and translator. His writings, teachings, and commitment to interfaith dialogue have supported and inspired Buddhist, Jewish, and other spiritual practitioners for decades. He is a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop and has a master's from the Graduate Theological Union at the University of California at Berkeley. As a Soto Zen teacher and priest, He practices in the lineage of Shunryu Suzuki and is a dharma heir of Sojun Mel Weitzman from whom he received his dharma transmission in 1988. He served as abbot for the San Francisco Zen Center from 1995 to 2000 and he then founded the Everyday Zen Foundation in 2000, a group and related projects in Canada, the United States and Mexico. As a poet, Norman Fisher's first published works were released in 1979, and his first collection titled Like a Walk Through a Park was released in 1980. He has since published over 15 volumes of poetry, including two new releases. The first one is called Nature, and it was released by Tumba Press in March, 2021. And then the second one was titled There Was a Clattering As, and that was released through Lavender Ink Press in April, 2021. As an author, Norman has written nine books on Zen and numerous essays and books on writing, poetry and spirituality. His essays have been published in magazines such as Buddha Dharma, Tricycle and Shambhala Sun. And in collections such as Radical Poetics and Secular Jewish Culture, and The Best Buddhist Writing. Norman Fisher's numerous books include The World Could Be Otherwise, Imagination and the Bodhisattva Path, as well as Training and Compassion, Zen Teachings on the Practice of Lojong. He is here today in conversation about his newest book, released in May 2021. The book is titled When You Greet Me, I Bow, Notes and Reflections from a Life in Zen. The book is edited by Cynthia Schrager and is a collection of essays spanning Fisher's entire career. This book is highly engaging and each essay pertinent to the world right now. It allows us to see the fascinating development of the mind and the interests of a gifted writer and profoundly committed practitioner. So Banyan Books community, please join me in welcoming our special guest today, Norman Fisher. Norman, thank you so much for being here today.
1: Thanks, Ross, for that uh, introduction. You, you really got a lot of information in, in there. So i was a little uh, uh,
0: surprised to hear all that. Well, I mean, there, there's a lot to know about you and that was only scratching the surface. So I tried to get a little bit in there.
1: Thanks, thanks
0: yeah now you've been practicing teaching writing for a long time now how many decades five decades or more uh
1: i I, well i started zen practice in uh in 1970 and uh i guess i started uh helping people to practice uh you know as a more senior person probably by around uh 1980 or so or early the early 80s and then as you said I was I was given full permission to teach in 1988 so since then I I've, I've been very active uh guiding people t- the best I can yeah
0: right okay now this book is is really covers the span of your whole career as, as a writer and um I'm just curious to know off the top what what was the experience like for you going through all of this material from the past to the present of course with the help of your editor cynthia schrager
1: well yeah it was cynthia who did all the hard work of figuring out where all these things were and you know when they had been published and so on and she she really did uh, a lot of work i'm quite grateful to her for it she's a very skilled reader and an understander of texts she's got a doctorate in english literature literature so she really knows writing she's the one who Found the texts and put them together into uh, thematic categories, and in fact, uh, some of the texts needed to be edited because uh, I didn't. Want, they weren't presentable for the present. You know, they were published many years ago, maybe, and so I needed to gussy them up a little bit. And she helped a lot with that. She also had the idea to um, um, precede each of the thematic sections with new writing so that I could do exactly what you're asking me to do, reflect, you know, in the present about what I think about what I said in the past. And so I did that in front of each section of the book. It's, she said, uh, I was very lazy. I said, oh no, I don't want to write new stuff. And she said, oh no, this will be really easy. You, it'll just be notes. You just have to write like very informal notes about the writing. You don't have to write anything too polished or finished so i said oh that's that's good i can probably do that quickly so uh that's why the t- the subtitle is notes and reflections uh from a life in zen because part of it is contemporary notes written just about maybe i don't know six months ago and then part of it is uh the essays that are collected but right. it, was, it was kind of fun especially i mean i don't think i could have done it if i did to do it on my own it would have been Impossible, but with Cynthia's help, it it was it was kind of fun.
0: Wonderful, and I'll just I'll just show for those that have the video that they're watching. You can see the cover when you greet me. I bow. Notes and reflections from a life in Zen. And it's a wonderful book, really wonderful book. For myself, not being a student of Zen, um, I found it very helpful uh, and um, illuminating. So thank you. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Now, um, for, for everybody here, we're gonna do a little practice Guy uh, Norman is gonna guide us through a, um, a short centering practice before we get into the rest of the conversation. Thank you, thank you.
1: And I'll, I'll use my meditation bell, and I don't know how it'll work with the sound and the technology, but I'm gonna ring it uh, three times to open up a few minutes of practice. And when you hear the sound of the bell, uh, assuming you can hear it well, Uh, Let that sound bring you back to your body as you're sitting. So gather in your awareness to your body, imagine as if the awareness is scattered here and there, you don't even know where, and now you gather it in and you bring it to your feet and your lower leg and upper leg. In your spine. Square your shoulders and open your chest. Feel a gentle lifting in your spine. And feel your arms, your upper arms and lower arms and your hands. Maybe you can feel uh, the blood moving through your body in your hands, and feel your breathing. If you can, feel it in your belly, very grounded, Deep breath connected to the earth and the sky. And just breathe gently in and out and feel it in your belly. and let yourself relax and release, especially on the exhale. Feel the beauty of that exhale. And what a pleasure and what a surprise to be alive for one more breath. Thank you.
0: Thank you for that. Now I'm curious, the the book, uh, When You Greet Me, I Bow, it's broken up into four sections and you give your notes from the present for each section. How did you decide on the theme for each section?
1: Well, as I say, that was mostly uh, Cynthia's work. And, and you know, uh, she's a good reader. So she imagined, you know, getting... First of all, I, I think that the material... I think she said that the material in the book is about half of what I've published over the last decades. So first she had to select uh, what was worth reprinting. And then... Uh, <clears throat> As she read and, and thought about the material, she saw these four themes. So it was really her ability as a reader uh to sort of see through the forest of words for the theme. So it was really, it was really her doing.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. So the the first section you it's titled A Buddha and a Buddha, and you speak about your notes at the start as the joy and catastrophe of relationship. Now, I'm really curious, you talk about how you've come to feel now that Zen practice is really about relationship. That's the heart of Zen practice. So what did you start out believing Zen practice was as an early practitioner? And what has brought you to this point now?
1: Well, I think I started out um, concerned for my own suffering, and my own spiritual transformation. So I think I had a kind of heroic you know view of Buddhism in, in some way. But when you think about the story of the Buddha, it, it is a kind of heroic story. you know I mean the Buddha goes off on his own. he abandons everything, right And he goes off on his own not knowing how or where or why. And although he does study with some teachers and join their communities, it seems for a brief period of time, and then he goes on his solitary quest for awakening so that story was kind of how i looked at it uh, in the beginning but as i went on you know step by step by step and i really uh, began to appreciate more deeply and understand the teachings uh, i saw that the whole point of the teaching is that uh, there is no historic Uh, Sorry, heroic individual or historic for that matter, individual who is like uh, by his great strength and determination overcoming all odds and getting awakened. There's no such thing and in fact the fact that we hold on to such an image is why we're suffering. Because uh, when you understand the Buddha's teaching of impermanence and non-self That's what it amounts to that that, uh, everything comes and goes in a moment's time, nothing at all remains even long enough for it to be named. And everything that happens just everything that happens is a moment of meeting moment after moment phenomena arise and meet and join and pass away and what we call me and you is a series of such meetings. And we're always meeting something by relationship i don't mean just relationship with people although that's very important and, and primary in in human life and in our practice but it's relationship with everything with uh with our breath which is after all air coming in we're literally breathing in the sky right and exhaling the sky and the, and the air around us and so every moment there's a sound there's a sensation, there's something that's we're meeting, and then that moment it creates our life, and then that same moment it passes away. So every moment is a moment of relationship, a moment of meeting, and that is awakening, to appreciate those meetings one after the other. It's not some state of mind that I'm achieving through my intensive meditation practice. So that's how, how it's changed for me over, over these
0: many years. Okay, so d- kind of dropping this idea that there's somewhere we're trying to get and dropping into that relationship to whatever's arising in the present exactly exactly, yeah okay
1: the moment is a moment of relationship in which all these things arise together, right exactly no- nowhere to get to just but that moment
0: you one of your essays in the first uh section is. Titled "No Teachers of Zen." Mm-hmm. What is the what's the real essence of the role of teacher in your tradition?
1: Well, I can only say how I understand it because I don't know that I necessarily speak officially, you know, for the tradition. Probably other Soto Zen teachers would have something different to say, but in my uh, opinion. Um, what would you teach you know like you know zen, zen. if zen is really helping us to just live our lives without getting in our own way in this strange and beautiful moment of existing for one second and then not existing and then existing again if, if it's just that then what, what are you going to teach you know how do you teach that it's like saying, how do you teach someone to be alive? You, know, you don't really need to teach anybody how to be alive. They already are alive. So I don't think there's any such thing as teaching Zen, in my opinion. Uh, however, um, as we all know, if that's true, it doesn't matter because we're suffering anyway. And we are stuck with ourselves and all of our confusion. And we do need to uh, transform. So there is a process of transformation, and the practice, I really think, is astonishingly effective in bringing about transformation for people, astonishingly effective. And it has a a format, it has a, there's a whole, in Soto Zen, it's formal, you know, there's Zazen, and there's chanting, and there's bowing, and there's uh, traditional uh, meetings with the teacher, which are ritualized, and there's Dharma talks, which are ritualized. So, um, in other words, there's a whole um, mandala that you enter in order to become transformed. And in that mandala, there's a place in the mandala for a Zen teacher. We call Zen teacher, even though there's nothing to teach and nobody teaching. There's a place in that mandala and someone has to stand in that place. And so in our tradition, you're, you, you go through a whole set of rituals to empower you to stand in that place. And then all you have to do is stand in that place and do your own practice. And, and then uh, the mandala will affect the transformation. So there's a role for a Zen teacher, I think, which is a very important role in the mandala. But it's not the Zen teacher who knows the thing that he or she teaches. Rather, it's the mandala itself that affects transformation with nothing to teach and nothing
0: to learn. Hmm. What's, for you, been the biggest challenge of, step, of standing in that position or that role, as you've said?
1: Well, uh, I think the biggest challenge for me personally has been uh, um, knowing that you are going to hurt people when you're in that position, because um, no matter what you do, even, even if you're you know a wonderful person who never says a crossword or understands everyone perfectly, if such a thing were even possible, but even if it were, people would always bring their own pain to that mandala And hopefully the model absorbs the pain and transforms it, but sometimes it doesn't because the pain is too deep, and so the person ends up uh, becoming uh, hurt, misunderstanding, becoming hurt, and can easily uh, feel that you're the person who has hurt them. And and maybe sometimes you make mistakes and you do hurt them. But I think that even when you don't make mistakes and hurt them, you can hurt them anyway. And and I know that and I appreciate that very deeply. I really understand that point. And and so I know it's inevitable. And and even though uh, the mandala mostly helps people far more than it hurts people, so more people are helped. But I'm not impressed, you know, that people say they're helped, especially if they think that I helped them. That doesn't impress me because I don't think it's true that I've helped them. But I do take it gravely and I feel responsible when people are hurt. So, I mean, even though it's not necessarily reasonable, why don't I take credit for when they're, you know, when they're helped? And if I'm gonna take responsibility for when they're hurt. No, uh, no, I don't take credit for when they're helped, but I do take responsibility and I feel great sorrow when they're hurt. And, and, and I've ex- experienced it. I, I've been through this with people. So, uh, and and I never forget about it. So that's the hardest part. But, you know, it's not even that, to be honest, it's not that hard because uh, it's, you know, everybody suffers, right? I mean, if that's my suffering, right, that I hurt people in that way without intending it, uh, I can live with that. It's okay. You know, I don't, it doesn't make me obsessed with it. So it's not so bad. I don't want you to feel sorry for me. You know, it's not so bad.
0: (laughs) That's good. That's good. The second part of the book, form is emptiness and your, your notes on thinking, writing and emptiness. So one of the things that is interesting to me is that we can come to emptiness through the body. So I'm curious um, what role, and I noticed in the meditation, you, you instructed us to allow the bell to bring us back to our body each time. What role does the body play in, in Zen practice?
1: Oh, it's hugely important. Mostly the practice is a physical practice. So when we're sitting in Zazen, we're not really focusing on spiritual states or reviewing in our mind uh, teachings. Uh, In Tibetan Buddhism, there are many visualizations and and things to work with the imagination. So that's a practice that exists in in Buddhism a lot. Um, But in Zen, we don't really do that. Our practice is very concrete and physical. what What I was giving instructions about a minute ago is pretty much it. You just return to your body and you pay attention to your body and you pay attention to your breathing and and yes things might arise in your mind that you're aware of but you don't pay so much attention to them you let them go and return to the body and then when you get up from the cushion then there's bowing and chanting which are physical activities and then going forth into your day there's you know walking between your a uh, place of work in the bathroom or w- walking this way and that way and there's uh, breathing all day long and paying attention to your senses I, if, I, if i'm talking to a person i'm seeing them i'm hearing their voice i'm sensing their presence that's all in my body so um, really the practice is mostly in the body Of course, we all are thinking because human beings seem to do that most of the time. Thinking is going on, and and then we, and and we're thinking in in language. We're thinking in words, and words are. I appreciate this a lot as a poet. You know, words are amazingly inexact and uh, crude uh, ways. To describe or name things even though we we don't know that about them but they really are and so um, with our thoughts we're creating situations that cause us a, a lot of suffering and so in a great to a great extent very simply to balance thinking with awareness of our body and our breathing so that the thinking doesn't run away with us that's a huge deal I mean, maybe it's life is as simple as that. Just be aware that you're alive all together in your body and your breathing and your senses, not just in your thinking and in your emotions, but put it all together into a life and then, and then you can live. So it, yeah, the body is, uh, is, is everything in Zen practice.
0: How is it that um, the experience of emptiness or the awareness of emptiness you, you point to this in one of your essays, uh, how emptiness, when we come to that place, when we know that as truth, uh, it frees us of what you call the afflictive emotions. How, do, how is it that that happens?
1: Well, um, emptiness officially means that every, everything is without the substance we project onto it. So there's something going on here, but not what we think. We think that there are solid entities who own things like their own bodies and their own selves, and that the issues that we're concerned about are fundamentally concrete, but they're not. Everything is just uh, sort of a very light and airy phantom coming and going. So it's real, but it's real in a much more delightful and connected way than we think. It's the lack of connection that makes us suffer. But in fact, everything is connected. So when we realize that things are not the way we thought they were, but they're very light and airy, the basis on which our inflictive our afflictive emotions depend dissolves. So if I'm mad at you and I think you really said something really insulting to me, and now I really don't like you, and you wounded me, now I'm a miserable person because of that. But if I realize that, well, these were just very fleeting events happening in the room between us and that the thoughts that i have of anger or hurt are insubstantial just coming and going i don't need to really believe them i just need to observe them and see how they make me feel and let them go then i'm not activated in the same way at all and i can still be a human being i could still be hurt if you don't like me but that hurt doesn't really have to plague me or make me that upset because okay i could be hurt that's all right it comes it goes it's not anything substantial so it's everything is okay in that way and the emptiness teachings and our ability to actualize them in our own bodies and hearts and minds makes that kind of shift in us
0: the third part of the book is titled east west and you give your notes on cultural encounter the essays examine ways that cultures and also religions influence one another so i know that you've uh, done a lot of work in in terms of interfaith dialogue and uh, bringing together particularly um, the jewish tradition and the buddhist tradition how how is that um shifted over time in terms of where did you start out with in your work with interfaith dialogue and particularly the bringing together of buddhism and, and jewish uh, practice and and how has that uh, transformed and become what it is now well um
1: i've also do- done a lot with the catholic uh, lots of intermonastic dialogue with catholic religious that's been very illuminating and valuable to me But I think that how it started was really unintentionally. Almost everything that I have done has been unintentional. I stumbled into everything, you know. So I don't, I can't really take any credit for any of it because I was just kind of crashing along and then things happened. It's kind of wonderful. I'm happy about all the things that happened, but I didn't make them happen. So it's like that in this case, I had a really close friend who um, we went to University of Iowa Writers Workshop together and then we moved to California together and after we were done with that in 1970 and uh, we were practicing Zen together too for about a decade. And to make a long story short, he ended up becoming a rabbi and we, stayed in touch the whole time that he was studying to be a rabbi. And I grew up uh, in the Jewish tradition, and I always appreciated it. And when I was a boy, I had uh, a wonderful rabbi who uh, took me under his wings. So that gave me a positive feeling for it. But I didn't have much to do with it, you know, when I was studying Zen. But when my friend became a rabbi, he said, well, let's start doing things together and he was a meditator after practicing zen for a while so we started doing jewish meditation eventually and that made me study judaism more and then over the years of doing that i have lots of rabbis now that are friends and colleagues and i do lots of retreats with them and i become you know very much aware of the jewish meditation world which is a jewish world it's a, it's a branch or a tendency within judaism and then uh, i think years ago i was invited to attend some buddhist christian dialogues and and you know accepted the invitations and again had a lot of friends that i made through those conferences and events and practiced in their monasteries and visited their monasteries and so um i really appreciate um you know in in this it's really not exactly right to think of it as uh interreligious dialogue as if we're comparing notes uh, this is what we say that's what you say that kind of thing it's more like we're doing each other's practices and in doing each other's practices we're we're getting on the inside of each other's traditions and when you do that you'll inevitably learn something about the main tradition you're practicing because you see it differently from another side. And I think it really deepens your appreciation of it and also your appreciation of the other tradition. So there's many ways, human beings are so various and there are many ways of expressing a human life. And I think all the different religions are very honed down Uh, expressions of particular cultures ways of being human and it's a very beautiful thing to understand from the inside and from the heart uh any religious tradition i think it's just uh, really poignant i really enjoy it i find it uh, quite moving always
0: the other thing that i really found fascinating was you talked about uh the connection between cultures and how Japanese Zen coming to America, it didn't just impact American culture, but in fact, Japanese Zen would have been impacted by its contact with American culture. Can mm-hmm. you comment on that for us as well?
1: Yeah, well, uh, just the other day I was uh, talking to people in an event something like this, and somebody asked about that, and they were asking about political activism. And political awareness in Zen. And they said, uh, Isn't it going against the Zen tradition? Didn't, didn't uh, Zen in Japan always uphold traditional values rather than being socially and politically aware? Wasn't that what Zen was always in Japan? And so if you're a Western Zen person and you're emphasizing, as I have often emphasized, you know, political and social awareness and action isn't that anti-Zen or untraditional or somehow maybe a misapprehension of Zen. And so I said, well, that's interesting because in a way it's true. You know, I think that the Western Zen emphasis on political and social awareness comes from our Western traditions, you know, the Bible. Uh, in the hebrew bible and and the gospels are very much political you know they're about the world and 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 the need for there to be justice and inclusion in the world jesus is always talking about the poor and you know taking care of people and sacrificing the law so that people would be better served and so on And, and the prophets of the bible are always railing on about about justice and, and about about uh, the need to be fair to people and so on. So when Western Buddhists have a sense of social awareness, it's because they're Westerners and they all grew up with this sense of social responsibility. But then uh, the Japanese, who are very aware of the Western Buddhist movement, and there's plenty of connection over the last 50 years between Japanese and American Zen, younger Japanese Buddhists are now themselves socially aware and Japanese Buddhists now engage in all kinds of social welfare projects. And I think to some extent it's a reflection of their observing us and thinking of of the West as being maybe um, a more updated or contemporary form of Zen. And so then they, especially the younger priests now, take that in and emulate it in some way. So what I'm saying here uh, is probably debatable. In other words, somebody could surely point to many counterexamples, but I think, it, nevertheless, I think it's, there's truth to it.
0: Dogen's, uh, correct me if I'm pronouncing it wrongly, is it Dogen's Shobogenzo?
1: Dogen, yeah.
0: Dogen. Dogen's Shobogenzo. Yeah. What makes this this work so unique and powerful? Obviously, reading reading When You Greet Me, I it's had a huge impact on your life and work. What makes it such a unique and powerful uh, work? Well,
1: uh, I'm pretty sure that Dogen did not consider himself to be an innovator in any way innovation is not a a value in buddhism you don't get any points for being unique in your approach what you want to do is be true to the tradition and present it within your culture in the truest way you can so that's what he was doing Uh, but nevertheless um, just like he can't help uh, like i can't help being an English-speaking American, and you can't help being an English-speaking Canadian, he couldn't help being a Japanese-speaking Japanese. So he couldn't help but make the Buddhist tradition merge with the cultural values that he had uh, and spiritual values that he had as a Japanese person. And, and, and to make uh, something very complicated, perhaps too simple, in a word what I think is so wonderful about Dogen let's make I'll make a couple points one point maybe spiritually the most important point is that Dogen's approach to Buddhism uh, validates and cherishes this ordinary human life of suffering and sees this ordinary human life of suffering held Properly as the highest expression of spiritual truth and the highest expression of Buddha Dharma. And you wouldn't necessarily get that idea from other forms of Buddhism. And to me, that is what I really love about Dogen. He always has that as his basic understanding. But the other thing that I think is noteworthy about Dogen and unusual about him and makes him so appealing to the contemporary audience, uh, not necessarily a general audience, but certainly a philosophical and a religious audience, is that Dogen understands very, in a very sophisticated way how language is both our prison house and the key to that same prison house. So it's language that imprisons us and language that liberates us. And Dogen understands that in a very profound way. He knows that uh, we're communicating with language and we're thinking most of the time in language. And so we can't avoid language. We need to understand language and hold it in, in a different way. And he is one of the few who writes about that. And even when he's not writing about it, He's demonstrating it in his writing. So his writing has this uh, sort of sometimes dazzling paradoxical complexity that causes people to scratch their heads a lot of the time, like, what is he talking about? But what he's doing is demonstrating in his own writing this point. And so I would say if I had to pick out two things about Dogen that make him you know, unique and important, I would pick out those two things and certainly Personally, those are the two things that have been so valuable for me and why Dogen has been a source for me. When I got my degree uh, in Buddhist studies in religion with a concentration in Buddhist studies, I did my thesis on Dogen and and I completed the degree, degree, I think, in 1975, so I've been reading Dogen intensively uh, since 1975.
0: And you were involved in the the latest translation by Tanahashi and Levitt, is that right?
1: To some extent. I I had worked with Kaz years before. I haven't worked with Kaz on Dogen translations for some decades, but some of the work that I did with him in the past is included in the present volume that he did
0: with Peter, yeah. Okay. Now the the fourth part of the book, um, the final section of the book is titled difference in Dharma and you give your notes on social engagement. So I'm curious, you know, one of the, one of the big issues of our time and you you point to it is our issues around identity, whether it's gender identity or racial or ethnic identity and equality. And um, I'm wondering how you see those issues now through the lens of, of Zen Buddhism.
1: Well, Zen has actually a a very developed and sophisticated teaching about this. I I recently, in my Dharma seminar, uh, gave we did, I think, a two-month study of a one-page poem that's chanted typically in Zen centers. Uh, And the English translation of the title would, would be something like, The Merging of Difference and Unity. And so this is a fundamental uh, teaching of Zen, that each thing is at the same time, absolutely unique and its difference from all other things must be uh, awesomely appreciated. And at the same time, each and everything is nothing other than everything else. It's totally the same and non-different from everything else. And the dialectic between sameness and difference is really uh, at the core of our spiritual practice. It's not just a social dimension, it's also a spiritual dimension. So um, when I am aware all around me of everyone struggling to uh, find their sense of identity, which means their sense of difference, you know, to articulate, this is the way I'm different from others. Uh, I think that's so important for everyone to do personally, especially if they feel pain and confusion around that sense of identity, or they feel that it's an identity that has not been appreciated in the world. So it needs to be emphasized and appreciated and understood. That's really important work. But the other side of that work is that we're not in warring camps. You know, we're we're actually not apart from one another as human beings and as living creatures, we are part of a living world. And everyone that we meet is our brother and our sister. Whether it's a person in our identity group or not in our identity group, or even a non-person, maybe it's an animal or maybe it's a tree, You know, those beings are also part of our heart. So I think we need both sides. The trouble is when you say that the, the side of unity then it's, you could be uh, avoiding the difference or covering up the difference. And so we really need both sides. And, and I see that. And sometimes, you know, one side gets overbalanced of necessity because it's been underbalanced. So it needs to be overbalanced. So I think that's how I understand what's going on now in the world with all the identity politics and the need for identity. It doesn't, it doesn't seem wrong at all to me. It seems necessary. But I, I think that we also can't forget the other side. And most people who come to wisdom about this see both sides. Thank you.
0: Now, before we get to the audience questions, uh, I I have one more of my own questions for you, which is on the practice of the precepts in Zen Buddhism. Um, I'm just curious if you can give the community here a little bit of an overview of what that looks like, the practice of the precepts.
1: Well, um, we have a ritual in which a person who's initiated in the practice and really is committed to it can take 16 bodhisattva precepts. And, and they're, they're what, just what you would expect, you know, don't kill anybody or anything if you can help it, don't, don't steal, don't, don't lie and stuff like that. Uh, but uh, it, it, the way they're understood is, um, The precepts are understood as a description of the way that the Buddha would live. The Buddha who understands with loving kindness each and every person and would never wish to harm anybody. How would that Buddha look? He would look like a person who doesn't lie. He would look like a person who doesn't kill. He would look like a person who who is very modest and and humble and a person who uh, speaks kindly To others and so on and so forth so so in that way we understand the precepts as a kind of direction that we're heading in rather than as a series of rules to be obeyed so we try to live by the precepts but uh, a lot of times we make mistakes and and fail and then we try to uh, confess and repent and do better so we're all aware that no one keeps the precepts perfectly And at the same time, we understand in the eye of emptiness that you can't ever break any precepts. You know, precepts cannot be broken. Just as they cannot ever be kept perfectly, they cannot ever be broken. So there's no way you condemn somebody, you know, for breaking precepts because actually they can't be broken. So if somebody does uh, very drastic misconduct, that causes harm, the person needs correction for their own benefit, and maybe sometimes need to be removed from other people for the well-being of those other people. But the person is never not a Buddha, and never not to be forgiven and understood, even when punishment of some sort is indicated. So the precepts kind of bring you to that sort of view and and you apply that to yourself as well. You know, uh, I sometimes need to be corrected and restricted because of something I've done, but I never need to condemn myself as a human being. I'm still a Buddha and I still need to forgive myself for my own conduct. Mm
0: -hmm. Thank you. The first uh, question we have from the community here is, uh, from Den- Dennis, it's either Dennis or Denise. Um, how has your understanding of taking the Bodhisattva vows changed and shaped your practice?
1: Well, I, I would say mostly, um, I, in the beginning, I, I suppose I thought that the Bodhisattva vows were something unusual and something that uh, were external to me. And as I've practiced over the years, I realize that the bodhisattva vows uh, are not external. Uh, and they're not uh, something that I'm doing or moving along a path as much as they are expressions of my heart, of all all human beings, you know, have have the bodhisattva vow as the essential. Uh, aspect you know we were talking a moment ago about identity well you could say that our fundamental identity actually apart from all the other identities that we have we all have lots of identities right our fundamental identity is the bodhisattva vow to uh, live for and with others and to make that connection to others the centerpiece of what it means for us to be alive. I think we're built for that and we have that in our hearts. And eventually we come to see see it and appreciate it. And, and that's been my evolution in, in the
0: bodhisattva vow, I think. Mm-hmm. Thank you. The next question we have is from Hoda and uh, Hoda says, can you please speak of Dogen's Genjo Kone as the practice in daily life?
1: Well, Genjo Koan is uh, the title of what's probably Dogen's most famous uh, and most read, especially in the West, uh, essay. Part of his book, Shobo Genzo, that you mentioned earlier. And and what Genjo Koan is teaching uh, is that um, every moment arises as a koan, every moment that we take for granted and just sort of put it together with a whole bunch of other moments and call it a day, you know, is a mysterious arising of the truth. Every moment, if we're really present, we see the mystery and the majesty of impermanence because things arise and pass away at the same time so we're all the time living and dying and what we call death is not something that we haven't been experiencing every single moment of our lives and that doesn't make any sense and that is impossible to understand and yet we're living that moment after moment after moment and so uh, Genjo Cohen is telling us that, that the Dharma is simply plunging into that moment as it is and giving our whole life to that moment and having our life be an expression of understanding the truth of that moment. That's what he's saying in, in Genjo Cohen. So that's my little mini Dharma talk about Genjo Cohen. I think that's what Hoda was asking me to do,
0: I think. I think you're right, thank you. Paula asks, do you equate awakening with maturity and can you speak to what you understand as maturity? Some of this you speak to in your book, Taking Our Places.
1: Right, yeah, that's the theme of that book. And I really, and I really believe that, you know. I really think that um, there's nothing special about Dharma, and there's nothing special about the Buddha. I think the Buddha, who was like a troubled person, after all, you don't leave home and you know, give away all your possessions and wander around in the wilderness if you're a well-adjusted, happy young fellow. No, the Buddha was a troubled guy. And then he became, in my opinion, a normal person, a normal human being. To me, that's what awakening is. Just becoming a normal, mature human being. I don't think awakening amounts to anything other than that. The thing is that you look around and you realize how rare that is. Most people are not grown up and they're not normal. I mean, we have this whole idea of like you know, mental illness and we even have an idea like success. Some people are successful. Other people are mentally ill, but actually we're all mentally ill and there are no successful people at all. Only people who are just normal, mature human beings. And they're they're rare. I mean, fortunately, they exist And, and sometimes we don't even notice them because they're not successful maybe and they don't have the marks that we have come to value in human beings but if you have your eyes open you can see them and you really appreciate them so i think that's right i think spiritual practice is just the effort to become a mature ordinary and normal human being and that in itself is an enormous blessing and unfortunately all too rare
0: Ardell asks us, can you please share an example of what you found illuminating from your interactions with Catholicism?
1: Well, I think Catholicism is such a beautiful tradition. Um, I think that... um, the you know it's we live in a christian world so we take this totally for granted but when you think about it what an idea right god by definition the all-powerful boss of everything right to be propitiated and worshiped god Gets born as a human being. Okay, God gets born as a human being. For sure, He's the king of everything. He conquers everything. He's like the big, best human being ever, right? No, God gets born as a human being who is pathetically tortured and killed. God does that. What an idea. Unbelievable. That means that there's something precious number one about human suffering and number two about unfortunate people so instead of the obvious if you're you want to be great and powerful and people who are not great and powerful well why bother with them it's the opposite the person that you don't want to bother with who's pathetic and not powerful is the most precious because god is that person whoa who would have thought of such a thing it's really quite unbelievable i remember once i was in oaxaca in mexico where there's a lot of native peoples i remember going to the cathedral in town and and peasants you know people who work on farms were coming from all over lining up there was like blocks and blocks of lined up people to go to confession in the church and i realized wow you know these people who've been so downtrodden and oppressed for so long no wonder they love this religion no wonder they understand this religion because god was just like them this is an amazing thing i think I, i can't get over it even now you know so I think it's just a beautiful, and you take it for granted in our culture, you know, and then we're so, so aware of all the, you know, bad ideas and bad things that have happened as a result of Christian power in the world. But uh, in essence, that's what the religion is teaching us, and it's a very beautiful thing.
0: Thank you. So the next question, I think we've got time just for one more question. And it's about spiritual bypassing from Anne. She just wonders, what have you experienced or seen in terms of spiritual bypassing?
1: Well, um, I guess everybody understands that term now. It's, it's been used a lot. It was created uh, by psychologists who were practicing buddhism and noticed that a lot of people who had a lot of pain were hoping that they could meditate their way out of that pain without having to confront it by kind of getting in a bliss state and getting enlightened and then the pain would dissolve and they call that spiritual bypassing which is is possible I've, i actually it's not never been possible for me i've always been so aware of my suffering and so unable to avoid it in any way that I, spiritual bypassing was not never anything and, I, and i'm not a great you know uh, spiritual meditator or something like that so i i, I mostly uh, i've had to struggle in meditation rather than have transcendent uh, states if i have transcendent moments they're not nearly as many as the moments of suffering and struggle in meditation so spiritual bypass as far as i'm aware myself have not has not been something that i've been involved in but i have seen people who have tremendous suffering that can be quite buried and those people are often or some not often but sometimes given to uh Spiritual obsession, you know, obsession with ecstatic states and high states of various sorts. I mean, uh, the mind is capable of, you know, tremendous fireworks, of course, all sorts of visions and feelings, kinetically, and uh, sensations that are you know, quite transcendent and, and lovely. And, and I think, uh, you know, like, um, well, I don't want to get on a tangent, so let me retract my brain. Yeah, so people with a lot of suffering would naturally want to not deal with that and engage in spectacular meditation states or want to meditate all the time. In our practice, it seems harder to do because we're just focusing on the body and the breath. And there's even lore in our tradition that if you have something really important happening in your meditation, don't pay too much attention to it. Just come back to your body and your breath. So in our tradition, uh, people don't have transcendent states too much. And they're encouraged to look at what's there. And eventually, if you sit there long enough, whatever your pain is will manifest and then you'll have to deal with it. So yes, if I see someone who looks like they're doing spiritual bypassing, I will kind of gently try to bring them down to earth. And sometimes uh, it doesn't work out and then they'll get mad and walk away. Uh, And sometimes it does, little by little, gently, without forcing anything, you can digest your pain and make your peace with it. Even, Even if its effects don't ever go away you can live with them a lot better through uh,
0: the practice. That's all for our our audience questions. Um, Before we say goodbye, I just wanna find out what's what's next for you in your work and, and practice.
1: Well, like everybody else that I know in the Buddhist world, uh, I'm on Zoom, I'm with you on Zoom today, right? So everything's on Zoom, which makes life actually a little easier because although I can do more things and go more places, and I'm not trying to do things, I do plenty of things, but if somebody asks me, I usually try to say yes if I can. It's easier because I don't have to get in cars and airplanes and that's the hard part right get packing your suitcase and try to remember what you're supposed to bring with you and getting to the airport or the venue on time much more difficult than just i set a little alarm and i come down to my office at a certain time so i'm going to keep doing that and more of that starting tomorrow i have a seven day session at our community our red cedars Zen community in bellingham washington not far from where banyan is so i'll be in a week session then and, and then i'll just look and see what the next thing on my calendar is and i'll just do each thing uh and i'll keep doing that until i can't do it anymore i guess and and i'm i'm always uh writing so uh, today i wrote some poems and i'm always writing poems and other things writing in my journal i have many many hundreds of volumes of journals that i always write in so i try to stay out of trouble and keep staying alive and taking care of myself and that's what i'll keep doing more or less
0: the same wonderful and if people want to learn more about you and your your work where can they go online
1: Well, uh, the website of our local community is everydayzen.org, O-R-G, and I think everything. uh, I'm sorry to say that uh, the information on that website is, it's hard to keep it up, so it's not 100% always up to date, but uh, the main thing on the website is many thousands of Dharma talks that are uh, easily streamed, and there's no... um, charge or fee or anything like that you you can make a donation if you want but you can listen to dharma talks uh, all you like and there's also a study guide on there where you can study in a somewhat systematic fashion buddhist teachings and texts with my uh, audio or written commentaries to those texts so that's the main website www.everydayzen.org and i also have an author's page normanfisher.org which uh, shows links to all my books so that's where they can find out more if they're if they're interested
0: that's great thank you and a reminder everyone you can you can purchase any of norman's books through the banyan website b-a-n-y-e-n.com um, a big thank you to the whole banyan books community for all of your support over the years and now big thanks to everybody who works in the shop at Banyan books from purchasing shipping receiving to everybody out front and of course to our producer of all the events and this podcast Jacob Steele for all of the great work that he does and of course Norman Fisher thank you so much for being and thank, with us today
1: yeah, and thank you so much Ross and the whole team and Jacob and everybody and everybody who works in the store it's a great. Banyan is a great institution uh, in Vancouver. It's really, it's really something. So and congratulations on your anniversary.
0: Thank you very much. Take care. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. And I'm your host, Ross McEachie. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at Banyan.com.